We're in the book of Proverbs. We're wrapping up the book of Proverbs today. Uh, We've spent our summer in Proverbs talking about the different topics that this book talks about. And the entire book of Proverbs is really taking the, the central truth of Christianity, taking the gospel message, which is the message that we just sang about, that even though we're more sinful than we could ever imagine, uh, on the cross, we see that the love of God is greater than we ever dare to hope or dream. That Jesus Christ came to earth, he died for us, he was buried, and he rose again, so that whoever would turn from sin and trust in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's, that's our central belief as Christians. And then all of the rest of the Bible, and all of the places that we're commanded to obey— we're given commands that, to basically take the implications of that gospel message and apply it, apply it to every different area of life. And so the book of Proverbs, we've talked about how the gospel applies to family, how it applies to relationships, how it applies to the pride in our heart, how it applies to the jobs that we work, how it applies to anger that we struggle with, that the truth of Jesus Christ applies to everything. Uh, it doesn't apply in exactly the same way, but we do believe that that gospel is the key to every door. And that all of our needs, all of our questions, they all find their answer somehow in Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to take that gospel and apply it to our hearts, specifically in the area of our quest for joy. Um, This is a quest that all of us are on. All of us want joy. We all want to be happy. It's something that we're all chasing. Everything we do, we do to make ourselves happy. And you see it, especially during vacation season in the summertime, where people are going out and camping because there's happiness to be had. We'll, we'll pretend we don't have a house, we'll sleep on the ground, we'll not shower for a week, um, because maybe that'll make us happy, maybe that'll give us peace. Uh, we, we grill out, we, uh, everything we do, everything that's happening, all of our summer fun activities, we're doing because there, there's fun and there's joy to be had in them. And those are good things. Um, they're good things that we do. But the truth is, we're all looking for satisfaction in everything that we do. Um, Not just the good summer things we do, not just vacation, but everything we do, we do because we think it'll give us joy. Even when we make big sacrifices, we make those sacrifices because we believe that there's more joy to be had when we sacrifice something than when we hoard it for ourselves. So that's what we're all after. Pascal said this, he said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. They will never take, um, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So everything we do, we're doing for joy. And one of the draws of Christianity is that Christianity promises to make us joyful people. One theme that you see all throughout the Bible is that the redeemed people of God are people of joy. In Psalms, it says this, in Psalm 126, it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. So all throughout the Bible, redeemed people are glad people. And this is why for 2,000 years, when Christians get together, they sing songs. And if you've been a Christian for a while, we forget about how weird that is, that we're actually all getting together and all singing the same songs. I mean, as a culture, we'll go to concerts, we'll listen to other people sing songs, but for us all to get together, at least most of us, sing along and and sing these things out of joy is a strange thing. I remember way back when I was in in junior high, I went to a Billy Joel concert um, with my mom, and uh, (laughs) and, uh, 
we, we went, and we went to, to listen to Billy sing songs. And now occasionally he would back away from the microphone and you'd hear the whole crowd singing along with Piano Man or something. But it wasn't, um, for the most part, we were there to hear him sing. Nobody, if, if they had said, we're all going to get together at the stadium and sing Billy Joel songs, n- nobody would show up. We were there to hear him sing. But here as Christians, we're, we're getting together and singing Jesus songs, even though Jesus isn't walking among us in the flesh. And that's because Christianity makes us joyful people. Now, many of us, when we came to faith in Christ, we were told that it would be that way. That was the reason we came to Christ, because they said, if you believe in Jesus, you will be in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time. And that every day with Jesus will be sweeter than the day before, and it's just nothing but bliss. And so you accepted Christ, and he was supposed to fill you up and make you joyful and make you happy. But the truth is, a lot of the time, even as Christians, even as the redeemed people of God, we don't have that joy. We're not happy all the time. Every day with Jesus is not sweeter than the day before. We go through some really dark seasons, some dark times of sadness. And the nice thing about the Bible is it doesn't lie about Christianity like Christians do. Uh, as, as Christians, we like to, to take what's in the Bible and spin it and sell it and kind of fudge it a little bit and tell some lies. The Bible just paints an honest truth. And this book of Proverbs especially just lays out the truth that, yes, we are supposed to be the people of joy, but often we don't have it. So the hope today is to expose some of the reasons that we don't have joy, show us how to, in the, over the long haul, apply the solution to our hearts so that we could be the people of joy. Never perfect joy until Jesus comes and returns, but so that we can sing and mean it, so we can have that relationship we're after, so we can have that sense of fulfillment. Because Proverbs does say this, in Proverbs fourteen thirteen, even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. So if we're honest, a lot of us would say, I come to church and I sing the songs and you know, I'm, I'm with these people and I smile and I pretend I'm happy, but even in it, my heart aches. There's, there's grief in that. Proverbs 14.10 says, the heart knows its own butter, bitter, bitterness. The heart, knows, the heart knows its own bitterness and no stranger shares its joy. So some of us come in and we say, you know, nobody really knows me. Uh, nobody can relate. I, I've got my own joys, my own bitterness, but nobody else is where I am. And the Bible acknowledges this problem. Uh, it acknowledges that we don't have joy like we should, and our culture acknowledges the same thing. Uh, every year as a nation, we spend $80 billion in the mental health industry because we know we just don't have the joy and the stability and the peace that we should have. And, and while I think that part of the mental health industry is God's common grace that he's given to us, it's not like there's no good there, you would think that $80 billion would get us a lot farther than we are. But it hasn't. And so we keep struggling to, to find joy. We keep struggling to find happiness. And all the surveys say that people's happiness really today is at an all-time low. We just aren't getting what we're looking for. We're not getting what we're paying for. And you might think that the Bible would say, well, that doesn't matter. Just walk it off. I mean, just obey God. Do what's right. Uh, stop worrying about whether you have joy or not. But the Bible treats this like it is a big problem. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So we say you need to obey Jesus, but the truth is if we don't have joy, we lose a lot of our ability to obey Jesus. Kind of like if you love your job, nobody has to tell you to do it. Um, And I don't want to make it sound better than it is. Most of my job I love. Like, I do get out of bed early in the morning and get to work without anybody standing over me, you know, with a whip telling me that I've got to do this because I love an awful lot of what I do. When you have that job that you don't want to do, that you're just going, it's just a paycheck, 
then you need somebody constantly motivating you to do it. That's why God made bosses, to get you to do the jobs that you don't love doing. If you've got joy in your job, you do your job better. If you don't, it's path of least resistance, and you just do the minimum. And the same in our relationship with Christ. We follow Jesus, we obey Jesus better if there's joy in our relationship with Jesus, and we're not obeying him if there's not. Nehemiah 8.10 says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so if we don't uh, have the joy of the Lord, we don't have our strength for living for him. You, you wonder sometimes as you read through the words of Jesus, in some places he'll say things that make the Christian life sound like it's absolutely terrible. Like he says, hey, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And taking up your cross is not what we've made it to be. I mean, it's not just, you know, I, I have the sniffles and that's my cross to bear. It's, the cross was an instrument of death. Like he's saying, you need to die to yourself, die to your desires to follow me. And we read that and we say, man, that sounds awful. But then in another passage in Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So on the one hand, he's saying, take up your cross and follow me, die to yourself. In another place, he's saying, come to me because my yoke's easy and my burden's light. Well, well, which is it, Jesus? How can you say both? And the answer is he can say both because if we have joy in Jesus, then taking up the cross becomes a light burden. Joy matters. Whether or not there's joy in our walk with God is not inconsequential. It matters in a huge way for our strength for obeying Jesus. Also, it matters, I mean, Proverbs even teaches for our health. Listen to Proverbs 14.30. It says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. So the peace and the joy of our hearts is actually life-giving to our bodies. Uh, science says this today. You know, we, we know that stress can cause all kinds of physical problems. We know that a lack of joy and depression isn't just an emotional thing, that there's connection between emotions in the body, and Proverbs has always said that. It's also said it positively. Proverbs 17.22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. So our physical health is actually affected by whether or not we have joy. So we don't have joy like we should, and that's a problem. It, it does all kinds of damage in our walks with God. It can, can even hurt our health. But what's the solution? You know, Proverbs doesn't give just one cause for our joylessness. It doesn't say that everybody is made the same. And now Christians, pretty often, we try to give our one-size-fits-all solutions. Christians are notorious for this. Someone comes to us with a problem, and we like to have answers. We like to have life figured out. We like to, to be the guys who know what we're talking about. So they come to us with their problems. They come to us with their joylessness. And so we throw out our one-size-fits-all. This is always the answer. This is always the solution. But Proverbs doesn't do that. You know, for example, Christians will say, you don't have joy. Well, the problem is you need to share your faith more. If you just shared your faith with other people more, then your joylessness would go away. You'd stop, for, stop thinking about yourself so much. As you become more self-forgetful and focus more on others, you're going to have more joy. That often is a solution, but often that's not the reason for our joylessness. Or Christians who think that they're really good at praying will say, all you need to do is pray. When I pray, all of my sorrows lift. And, and if you just pray more, you wouldn't have so much sorrow, so you just need to pray more. Or if you're, you're a Bible nerd Christian, like we should be, then, then you come and you say, you need to become a Bible nerd too and spend more time in the Bible. And if you just spent more time in the Bible, then you would have joy. Often, 
that's a solution. But the scripture doesn't present that as the, the one-size-fits-all solution. You know, if you're a, a health nut type Christian, you come and say, you're not, you're not joyful, it's because you're not exercising enough. Come take my spinning class, and uh, you'll get endorphins, you'll feel better. I've got the solution for you. And so we offer those solutions, and often they don't solve the problem, and they can lend, leave people very disillusioned. But Proverbs wisely doesn't say there's just one reason for our joylessness. It actually lays out a whole bunch of different reasons, and I think it lays out one key to all those different doors. Um, now, before we go further, what I'm going to give you today is not a guaranteed five steps, do these five things, and you always have joy. It's not a here's how to be all the time, in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time. It's not that at all. In fact, I think you can take all of these, and, and you may not even find the reason that you're not joyful in this list, but, but what I'm hoping that everybody gets is a pattern a pattern for learning how to identify sin in our hearts, to identify the source of our joylessness, and then a solution for how we can apply the message of Christianity to what is wrong with us, and and then a lifestyle. Not an instant, think about these truths for three minutes and you'll be better, but how do I apply these truths to my heart for a life so that I can pursue my joy in Christ and often find a lot more of it than I do have? So what are the reasons for our joylessness? One, obviously, would be physical. You know, we looked at some of those verses already. Uh, We know that if you've got physical problems going on, that can hurt you spiritually. Uh, If if you go the next week without sleeping, you'll have physical problems. Uh, You'll you'll be acting like you're drunk. You'll be super slow. Your reaction time will be slow. There'll be all kinds of physical things that happen, but also you'll sin. If you go a long time without sleep, you'll find yourself sinning more through anger. Young parents, agree with me at all? Like where the kids are up all night and it's not like it's just a physical problem the next day. There's a spiritual problem. You'll be less guarded in the words that you speak and you might find yourself as you're less careful with your tongue uh, sinning with the things that you say. Uh, All kinds of sins and spiritual problems can come from just not having enough sleep. Or take another physical issue. Go the next week and don't drink any caffeine. You say, I don't know if I'd still be a Christian. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's bad. It, it, we, what we do with our bodies has this absolutely huge effect on our spirit. This is why Snickers had those um, you're just not you when you're hungry commercials where Betty White's out playing football with the guys and they're tackling, tackling her and yelling at her for being so slow. They're going, come on, Mike, what's wrong with you? And then they give her a Snickers. She eats it and she turns into a 25-year-old guy. And, and the, the tagline is you're just not you when you're hungry because the physical does affect everything. Um, pretty soon, I know we've got a bunch of people here who probably just moved to town. Any people new to Rochester who are here, new in the last month or so? Some college folks? Or, there were a lot more. Hey, guys. U of R? Awesome. Good to see you guys. Um, so, so we've got a lot of people who've come here to town, and I just got to let you know that um, today's the last day of sunlight, and um, pretty soon, <laughs> what, what's going to happen is the sun's going to go away for about nine months. Uh, we have... Uh, <laughs> In Rochester, there's a nine-month gestation period for good weather, and, uh, and it's about to start. So, so enjoy today, and I promise in February, you will be depressed. And we're going to get together in February, and we'll be depressed together and, um, and looking forward to the sunlight that's coming. So, so something happens when it's, it's cloudy for a long season that we get pretty gloomy in the wintertime around here. Um, it's, it's coming, but welcome. Thanks. Um, it, it's... <laughs> So there, there are physical causes for our lack of joy, but it's not just physical causes. That's, that's not the one-size-fits-all uh, solution that Proverbs lays out. Also, there are relational causes. 
And we looked at this verse, Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So we need other people to be speaking good words into our lives. And if we don't have them, we'll be weighed down. Sometimes our joylessness comes from living in isolation. Nobody ever says, you know who's got a lot of joy and who's really stable? Uh, That guy who lives in the cabin in the woods by himself. Like that guy's usually crazy. Um, and, and the reason is because isolation tends to sap our joy, tends to take it away from us. Now, I'm all for temporary isolation. Sometimes I just think, man, my ideal vacation would be solitary confinement for like five days, just all by myself, no phones, nobody else. That would be awesome. But long term, we lose joy. It, it, it doesn't grow when we're not in community. And so sometimes the isolation that we're in causes that. And sometimes we're not living in isolation. We're seeing people, but our relationships are so shallow or so many of our relationships are so broken that we don't have people speaking good words into our lives that they're just not deep enough to really even count. Or we'll substitute online community for real face-to-face community. Um, And I'm all for online community. I'm on Facebook. If you fill out a connect card tomorrow morning, I'm going to stalk you on Facebook so I can connect names and faces. I'm going to use that as a tool, but it's really not uh, a long-term fix for lack of community. Because on Facebook, you put out this one side of yourself. You write things that you want people to click like on. Uh, You want them to like this you that you're presenting. And then even if they accept you on Facebook by clicking like, you can't accept their acceptance of you because you know that's not the whole story. You don't tweet everything. And so, so that's not fully who you are. And so while online community can be a good place to start and can be a good supplement for relationships, it's not a long-term solution. A few weeks ago, I did a couple, uh, marriage for a wedding for a couple in our church. Are Drew and Hannah here? You guys back yet? I think they're still on their honeymoon. But there are a couple that originally, they met online and then moved to where they were face-to-face and then got married. And, and it's fine to meet online, but the problem is you don't want to live there. Like, I'm sure Drew and Hannah would not say, we just want to go back to sending emails to each other. Like, they, they want community that's face-to-face. And so as a church, uh, we, we put resources online, we put MP3s online. Uh, someday when we can find the volunteers for it, we'll take video and put those online. But those are always meant to be a supplement, not a substitute for church. A church is a gathering, it's a community, and, and I think that there are some extreme cases. I mean, there are cities in the Middle East where you might be a Christian who doesn't know any other Christians, and so that can be a real blessing to have something like that. But except for in the most extreme cases, what happens online can't be church. We've got to be face-to-face. We've got to have other people whose eyes we can look into who can speak those good words into our lives to bring that kind of gladness. So sometimes there are physical causes for our lack of joy. Sometimes there are relational causes. Proverbs also talks about moral causes. Listen to Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Sometimes we don't have joy because of our guilty conscience. We've done something and we've hidden it, something we did in the past that we got away with and nobody caught us, but, but it still weighs on us, or something that we're living in today that we know isn't right, we know it doesn't honor God, we know that it's not good for those that, that we're around. We're living in this sin and the guilt of that can weigh on us to where we don't have joy. And if we, we live there long enough, sometimes we can even forget what the cause was. There can be those moral reasons that we don't have joy. There can be real guilt on our conscience that causes it. And this isn't just for somebody who, who murdered someone 20 years ago and got away with it and, and feels like they're hiding it. To a degree, this is all of us. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, 
I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. When he asks that question, he doesn't ask us to raise our hand. He's not expecting us to all say, oh, me, me, my, my heart's pure. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And so all of us can have that fear of punishment for that coming. We can all have that anxiety over, man, is God really going to bless me when I'm living here? We all have that sense of guilt, and that can take joy away from us. So there can be physical reasons. There can be relational reasons. There can be moral reasons. Uh, Sometimes in those moral reasons, Proverbs 28.1 says, "The the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Sometimes when we've got guilt weighing on us for something we've done or something that we're doing, we run away from people who aren't chasing us. You might see it in yourself sometimes where you're extra defensive at work, where someone says something to you to maybe correct something or challenge something that you're doing, and you overreact and flip out at them. Well, they're not chasing you. They're not out to get you. So so what causes you to do that? You've got this sense of guilt, and you've got this weight on you that makes you feel like, man, people must be out to get me because I should be out to be gotten. Like, I'm guilty. The sense of guilt can suck happiness. Also, there can be a sense of meaningless that takes away our joy. You kind of know the way things go. You know the way the world works. And so you sit down with your family, and you're all sitting around the dinner table, and everybody's healthy, everybody's happy, and all you can think about is where is this going to go in the future? Someday one of these kids may rebel, and we may not have this happiness. Someday someone here is going to get sick, and, and not every day is going to be as happy as this Labor Day. And so you're, you're thinking about the future and where this all goes, and there's just this miserable thought. Um, you know, if, if you're really gloomy, you look around at your family and you say, one of us is going to see all of the other ones die. Unless we all die in a plane crash together. <laughs> and so, so now maybe you came in here and, and you came in saying, I wasn't struggling with joy at all. I was pretty happy. And... Um, not anymore. <laughs> like, there's there's this, this crisis we can come to where we recognize here's way, where things go, and then we're just like Proverbs 13, 14, 13 says, we're even in laughter, the heart aches, and we know that the end of joy can be grief. And sometimes you can be in that situation where you're, you're single and you don't want to be, and you're fearful. Like, where's this going to go? Um, 30 years from now, will I still be here? And I'm hoping... For something else. There can be a lot that weighs on us. Um, last, don't worry, it's going to get better. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. Um, but last, we don't have joy sometimes just really for, for purely spiritual reasons, where we don't have God in the right place in our lives. And so because we don't have him in the right place in our lives, we're looking for other things to become our God, and they never satisfy us. Proverbs thirteen twelve says, hope deferred makes the heart sick but a desire fulfilled is the tree of life. And we hope in a lot of different things. We, we think this will do it for me. When I go on this vacation, I'll be satisfied and happy and really have rest. When I move to this neighborhood, then I'll feel like I've arrived and I won't need any more. When I have this much income, this kind of job, when I get into this college, when I get into this relationship, that'll make me happy. But all of those hopes don't satisfy us. Have you ever been in that situation where you save for a long time to buy that new car or that new computer? And, and the computer shows up, and you open it up, and, and here's the moment you've been waiting for, but down underneath it, there's almost this heart sick, this isn't going to do it for me either. It's because it's not designed to do it for us. 
And sometimes we don't have joy because instead of looking for our joy in Christ, we're looking for it in the new Mac or in the new car or in the new relationship. And those things are always just a deferred hope. But then he says, this is where it starts to be some good news, a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. As you read through the Bible in Genesis at the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sin, God casts them out of the garden And as soon as they're cast out of the garden, God describes this scene where there's an angel who's sent there with a flaming sword, and that angel with the flaming sword is keeping them away from the garden where the tree of life is. So the teaching there is there's something that should satisfy us. There's life that's to be had out there, but we spend our whole lives looking for it. We have this sense that we just don't have that tree of life. Uh, Tim Keller said it this way. He he said, we have a sense of irretrievable loss, a longing for something that we remember but never actually had. In all of our music, we're looking for a song we remember but never heard. In love, we're looking for arms that we remember but never had. In rest, we're looking for peace we remember but we never had. In everything that we're looking for, we remember that tree of life, but we just don't have it. We, we, we know we don't have it, and we know those things that we're running after just won't do it for us. They won't do it for us fully. But the good news is that there is a tree of life that we can have. Uh, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he died on that tree, he was taking that tree of death that was a tree of death for him and making it a tree of life for us. That he went on that cross to take the punishment that we deserve. All of us deserve punishment for our sins, so that moral guilt is totally real. All of us deserve the bleak future that sometimes we feel like we're headed toward. All of us deserve a life without fulfillment because we've run away from the one who gives fulfillment. But Jesus died on the cross, and his death on that cross made that tree of death for him a tree of life for us. So that we could look to that cross and and see that tree of life and believe and have the forgiveness and the hope and the joy that we're after. But this kind of brings us back to where we started, because we're Christians, So we've accepted that cross. We believe in Jesus. We believe in what he did for us. So why do we still not have joy? I mean, you would think if this was true, that looking to the cross, looking to the gospel, if if that really satisfied us, then you would think we'd all be the most satisfied people in the world. There'd be no heart aching even in our laughter. There'd be no lack of joy. So why is it that we, the redeemed people of God, are not like those people who laugh? Why don't we have that joy? Again, I don't want to oversimplify the answer. But the one big answer that we have to learn over the course of a life to apply to every corner of our hearts is the cross and all of its implications. So this doesn't mean that we say, man, if, if you want joy, you just believe in Jesus. And so you say, okay. And you think for three seconds and you say, yeah, that worked. I'm joyful. I'm, I'm fine now. That's not what this is. But what we're called to as Christians is a life, a life of pursuit of our joy in Christ and using every tool that God's given us to work the joy and the truth of the gospel into all the corners of our hearts that still don't believe. Uh, This is why we get together and sing songs, to remind ourselves of the truth. It's not because we're always feeling this truth. It's to remind ourselves of the truth that we should be feeling. This is why we have our grace groups, so that we can get in community and have those deep relationships with other people who will take the word of God and speak it into those dark corners of our hearts. This is why we do devotions and read the Bible. This is why we pray. This is why we gather together as a church. It's why we serve. We do these things because we want to use every tool there is to take the truth of the gospel and use that one key on all the different doors that it's supposed to open. 
Right, so how is the gospel the answer when the reason for our joylessness is physical? You know, you're sick, or there's a chemical imbalance, or you're tired, or you're over-caffeinated or under-caffeinated. Like, how, do, how does the gospel apply to that? Well, the gospel is not the message that you can take a nap and feel better. But here's what the gospel does say about the physical world. It says that the physical world is good. Jesus Christ took on flesh, and so if he took on flesh, that, that couldn't have been a sinful thing to do. So when he stepped into the world, he was saying that this is good stuff, it's just fallen stuff. The Proverbs really teaches two big things, that the world was created by God and created to go a certain way, but it's a fallen world, so things don't go the way things go. And, and so it teaches those two big things, but the fact that this is a world that was created by God should tell us that the world is good, and that means that if there are purely physical solutions for our joylessness, as Christians, we can receive those with joy. We can take that nap. We can get a better diet. We can exercise. You know, in the cases where just can't figure anything out, I think we can even receive um, medication as a gift from God. Uh, I think it's overprescribed and overdone, but that doesn't mean it's never necessary. We can look at these things that are out there that are part of the physical world and recognize that because the physical world's not bad, there, there may be elements out there that will contribute to our joy. So, so the gospel does apply to the physical. Also, it applies to relationships to heal them. Now, I know, and I want to say this, there, there are people here just knowing uh, the, the size church we have, there's some people that your reason for joylessness is that you've been a victim in a relationship where you have been verbally abused for a long time, physically abused for a long time, and you've learned some patterns of thought that keep you pretty gloomy and depressed, and it's understandable that you're where you are. Um, I, I don't want you to feel guilty if that's where you are, but I do want you to have hope. I do want you to have hope that even taking the gospel and applying it to the way that you think about this evil person who's done horrible things to you can free you from some of the joylessness that you're experiencing now. Uh, and it doesn't happen in an instant. It can take a long time to learn new ways to think, to learn a whole new worldview, to apply that gospel to every corner of your heart. It takes a long time, but there is hope. You're not stuck in joylessness because of what somebody did to you. Um, not, not forever. There's, there's great hope for Christians. But we're patient with you. Um, and, and God's patient too. What we need to do is, um, when, when there are broken relationships that are our doing, where, where we've broken relationships with people, um, or just there's tension or strain or something that we blew up, we need to start by applying the gospel to those where the gospel says that we're sinful people. This means that when, when I've got a broken relationship with somebody, it's pretty rare that 100% of the blame is theirs. Now, it can happen. Those things do happen sometimes. But most of the time, when a relationship is broken, when I haven't necessarily been a victim in a situation, I need to go and confess my side of the sin to them. What the gospel should do is humble us so that we can go to those people who are our enemies, those people that we used to be friends with but we're not anymore. We can go and at least confess our side of things knowing that confessing what's true and confessing what the gospel says is true is a big part of the healing of that relationship. If we take the humility that the gospel brings to our heart when it crushes our ego and we apply that to our life and to our relationships, then that does change them and shape them so that we all should have some people who are, that we're in a relationship with that can speak that good word into our hearts. Now, none of us is going to be able to maintain that by never sinning against a person. If we get close to somebody and we spend a lot of time with them, it's going to happen because that's, that's who we are. 
But if we believe the gospel, we should be able to go back and confess sins, forgive one another, pray for one another, and see relationships healed, and healed even stronger than they would have been even maybe if we hadn't even sinned. There's a lot of healing hope in the humility that the gospel brings. Um, Also, the humility that the gospel brings should make it so that you're better at maintaining relationships because you're less about building an image for yourself and feeling like you can't laugh at yourself or like you always have to defend yourself. Um, If we believe the gospel, then we should believe how fallen we are, which means that we don't have to defend some image. So we should be people who laugh a lot at ourselves, um, who, who really realize how funny we are. And, and I'm not saying we're good at telling jokes. I'm saying we're good to laugh at. Um, I, am, I am hilarious to stand on the outside and look at and laugh at. And if I can't do that, there's probably a corner of my heart that the gospel hasn't gone to. There's probably some area where I don't believe, where I'm all about maintaining my image and making sure nobody's going to say anything bad about me. But if I'm at work and a bunch of people are making fun of me and I can't enjoy it with them, then maybe I've built this ego that shouldn't be there. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, he said, Laughter is a divine gift to the human who is humble. A proud man cannot laugh because he must watch his dignity. He cannot give himself over to the rocking and rolling of his belly. But a poor and happy man laughs heartily because he gives no serious attention to his ego. If Jesus is the biggest deal in my life, then I can laugh at me. If I'm the biggest deal in my life, then you better not laugh at me. Being a Christian and believing the gospel makes us people who should be able to laugh because it crushes our ego and frees us from having to maintain it. I remember when I was in youth ministry, uh, we, for five years, I lived across the street from the high school that I worked with in uh, Rush Henrietta High School. And so we had this little ranch house across the street from the high school. And I'm pretty bad at doing home improvement projects, but at one point I wasn't as good as I am now. And so I would, uh, I went out and I had to replace a window. It was, we were about to have our first baby, and so we had to um, put a window in there that wasn't all drafty. And I'd never done that before, and it was a nightmare. And so everything I'm doing, I'm well aware of the fact that my students are in that high school, not paying attention in class, watching me out the window. And so I go out, and this window falls out. The old window falls out, shatters, breaks, everything's broken. Um, I'm moving ladders back and forth, putting window in and out and in and out. I've got hammers and nails. It's a big mess. Everything looks bad. I ended up having to buy siding to, because I measured wrong, which I always do. And so it was just this big nightmare project. Toward the end of the project, I'm looking at it. It doesn't look great, but it looks done. And so I um, take my ladder and pick that up, and I'd forgotten that I'd left a hammer on top of the ladder. And of course... That comes down right on my head, and uh, heads bleed, it turns out, so, so I'm bleeding a lot, and then, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of hair to cover something like that up, and so it was, it was very evident. My kids who are all in that high school, I'm thinking, man, I wonder if any of them see me. I walk into youth group the following night, and they're laughing already. Um, like they, they've been talking about it. They saw the whole thing. I've got a bandage on my head, and they're pointing and laughing, falling on the floor, If at that moment I get really defensive, I think my problem is I'm not believing the gospel like I should. Because the gospel doesn't make a big deal about me. It makes a big deal about Jesus. If in that moment I can jump in and laugh with them and then punch them, if I can do that, (laughs) if I can do that, then, then the gospel's worked some kind of humility in my heart to where it's not all about me. Uh, if, if we can't laugh, there's something that's going wrong. 
There, there's something we just don't believe like we should, and we won't have as strong relationships if we're not able to laugh at ourselves. Um, you know, I guarantee something humiliating is going to happen to you probably this year. So, so God will provide opportunities. And <laughs> just go through your day worried about that because it's coming. Um, something's going to happen. And if in that moment it's all pride and it's all ego, it's just God's way of exposing none of us believe exactly like we should. So, so the gospel does bring a, a lot of weight to our relationships and it changes those, transforms those. Also, the gospel does take care of, the, of that moral guilt. And none of us can say, my heart's clean. None of us can say, I've never done anything wrong. If, if all of us got what we deserved, we'd all get hell. It, it's bad news when we have to pay for our sin. And so we end up fleeing when no one pursues because we've got that guilty conscience. The gospel says you're absolutely right in feeling that guilt because you're guilty. And in fact, if you could feel all of your guilt, man, it'd be worse than you even think. But then at the same time, it says Jesus paid for it. Jesus paid for all of it. When he died on that cross, the punishment that we sense that we deserve was paid for by Jesus. So we don't have to flee when no one pursues. We don't have to always run away. We don't have to have that weight sitting on us all the time feeling like I'm just this terrible person who's only got judgment waiting for me. We can say, yes, I'm as terrible as my conscience says I am, but Jesus' death paid for it. It's paid for, so I don't have to. I don't have to pay for it anymore. I don't have to run anymore. I've got this relationship with God where he sees me through the life of Christ, where the cross became a tree of life for me so that I don't have to worry that he's always chasing me down, always out to get me. You know, also the gospel applies to our sense of meaninglessness and the fact that we feel like things don't really have a future. Because the gospel says that, yes, all those people around the table are going to die, but that is not the end of the story. That's barely the beginning of the story. There are going to be rough months and years ahead. We're going to go through trials with all of our friends. We're going to go through loss with our family, and, and we will even see people die. But the promise of the gospel is that there's a resurrection coming, that, that those who have trusted in Christ will rise again. So we'll go through all those times, and we can't let the gloom of the times that we're going to go through overshadow the brightness of where we're going to be in the end. Uh, when you read the book of Revelation, it describes the scene at the end as this gigantic wedding feast with the Lamb, where we're together and we're feasting and we're eating and we're laughing in the presence of Christ. All of those that we've lost, who've trusted in Christ, are there. Uh, Tolkien's words are that everything sad comes untrue, and there's joy and there's peace and there's happiness, and that's where things are going ultimately. So there's that sense of gloom because we know there will be loss, but it's just not the end. And if we can get ourselves to believe that good news, then it, it strips a lot of that joylessness. So we apply the gospel to the future, and then we just apply the gospel to the spiritual problem that we have. That, um, that The more that we believe in the cross of Christ, the more our hearts soften, and the more we become people who really do worship Jesus and keep him on that throne of our lives so that there isn't some misplaced thing on that throne. The greater Jesus looks to us, the less uh, tempting sin will look to us. Also, the less satisfying good things will look to us. Vacation can become a good and God-given thing that you receive with thanksgiving, but it's just vacation. It's not your ultimate rest. Your family can be a good and satisfying and happy thing, but they are just people. They're not your God. All these other things fall into their right place if we believe the gospel and allow the gospel to soften and warm our hearts. And then once it does, we're transformed into worshipers who over a lifetime grow in joy. Now, ultimately, 
our final joy comes when Jesus returns. We don't have final joy yet. Um, it, we'll always struggle with this. We'll always have those gloomy days and those dark days. We'll, we'll have sin, and we'll, we'll have just wrong ways of thinking. We'll all have these little corners of our heart that don't believe the gospel. But even in those seasons, we can hope that it's not always going to be this way. He is coming back. He is going to make all things new. There is redemption that's coming. And so the call today is not to go and add joy onto your Christian life with a 15-minute exercise. The call is to believe the gospel and to spend a lifetime growing in your amazement at Jesus, growing in your awe of the gospel, because the more that we grow in those things, the more we grow in joy. It's a quest that we're on. It's a journey we're on. It's not a destination we reach fully before he comes back. But there can be huge progress. So if you're in that gloomy season, that dark season, that hopeless season, the key is to look to Christ. Keep looking to him. And when you feel like you can't look anymore, keep looking to him and ask him for the strength to look to him because he promises that the only place to really have ultimate joy is in him. So if you're looking at him, you're looking in the right place. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a second. And now's a good time for Christians to, to confess some of our sin to God just quietly in your heart. And sometimes our sin is the moral sin where we've broken God's commands, and we've, we've done that. We do need to confess that. Sometimes our sin, though, is that we've just looked for joy in the wrong places. We, we tried to find it in even good places where ultimate joy was not to be had. And all those things left us empty. All those, all those things were just a deferred hope, made our hearts sick. So now during that time, during this time, we can confess that to God. Now if you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, I want you to know that Christianity is probably different than you've heard. If, if what you think Christianity is, is what you've gotten from the media, or what you've gotten from the biggest hypocrites at work, I'd encourage you to, to look at the Christianity of the Bible, which is a very honest, very real, but very true faith. What the Bible teaches is that all of us are sinful. It says there's no one righteous, not even one. And so we've all fallen short of God's glory. We're in a fallen world. We're fallen people. We deserve God's judgment. And Christianity says we can't fix it. We can't do enough good things to get God to like us. We can't serve enough. We can't put enough money in the offering. We can't go to church enough. There's nothing we can do to ultimately fix the problem. But the good news of Christianity is that even though we were that sinful and we deserved hell, we deserved judgment, Jesus came and died on the cross and made that tree of death a tree of life for us. So if you're here and you recognize the sinfulness, trust Jesus. Trust that Jesus Christ is all God and that he's all man and that when he died on the cross, he died to pay the price that you should pay. He died for your guilt, for your failure. And instead of trusting in yourself, instead of trying to obey enough to get God to like you, turn from sin, turn from unbelief, turn from all other gods and turn to Jesus. Trust in his death for you and cry out to him for forgiveness and he promises of all those who come to him, he won't lose one. So whatever words you want, you can say, God, I know my sinfulness. I, I know that I'm broken. So Jesus, I turn to you. I trust in you. I'm turning from my sin and from my unbelief. Now, if that's where you are, if that's the cry of your heart, 
And Jesus promises he'll save you, he'll wash you, not because you did something right, but because he did something right. 